0: Thank you, Pauline. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you all this morning. Uh, if you happen to have one of these in your hand, you'll notice that on the back is a little outline of the talk. And if that's helpful for you to follow on uh, and also maybe jot a few notes, if that's helpful for you to kind of go over through the week and pray through, then that would be helpful as well. Um, let's pray together as we ask God to help us uh, look at his word together this morning. Gracious God, you love us. We see that particularly in this passage, just how much you love your church. And so, Father, we pray that as you have given us your word to grow and nurture and shape your church, we pray that we would hear you speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's probably fair to say that almost any parent with young children, or any children really, uh, thinks that their children are precious. I remembered actually uh, a little moment this week as I was looking at this passage that happened some time ago and that had proved to me that Kurt and Kelly Peters uh, from our botany congregation think their kids are special. Uh, Kurt had rung me to talk about some important matter. Uh, we were entrenched in a fairly important, at least I thought it was an important conversation, when Kurt abruptly severed the conversation and saying, I've got to go. I immediately thought, oh no, you know, what's, what's happened? What, what could be wrong? And uh, as if reading my mind, he quickly added, oh, uh, Caleb's just got home from a Wiggles concert, and he'll want to tell me about it. So I'll I'll better be there for him. I'll talk to you later. Um, And so, you know, there you go. That's how weighty the matter was. Uh, But I thought right there and then, what a great example of how precious Kurt's kids are to him. And friends, I, I want to make the point right up front that the church that is sometimes maligned, even from within, the church is precious to God. We are precious to God. The preciousness of the church is on view here today very, quick, very clearly as Paul looks to the future of the church in Ephesus after his departure. Uh, soon, uh, soon Paul will no longer be a free man. Uh, and so Luke has recorded for us uh, a final meeting Paul has with the leaders of the Ephesian church. But before we look specifically at this meeting with the Ephesian elders this morning, it'll help us, I think, to see the immediate context. Um, if, If you can turn back to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, or I do have this particular verse on the screen so that you can see it. 19 verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, While in Ephesus, uh, he resolved to head through Macedonia and Achaia to encourage the other churches that he'd already planted. And then he was gonna head on to Jerusalem before hopefully making it to Rome. Uh, That's the future that Paul is looking towards. And Luke doesn't tell us why Paul is going to Jerusalem in this passage, but we do know from Paul's letters that he was raising money from the Gentile churches and taking it to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. It was uh, both a genuine act of true Christian generosity, but also importantly, it would help the unity between Jew and Gentile Christians. Uh, In chapter 20, verses four and five, uh, we didn't read it just then, but Luke lists the names of Paul's traveling companions and where they come from. They are representatives from the Gentile churches going with Paul and the collection to express their solidarity with the church in Jerusalem. And the problem is, Paul knows what lies ahead. Uh, The Holy Spirit has warned him of hardship facing him in Jerusalem, verse 23. Uh, Not that it actually slows him down, though. Notice he's actually traveling fairly quickly. Uh, Let's just pick it up there from verse 14 in chapter 20. And when Paul met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul had set his face for Jerusalem. He was on the freeway to his destination and he wasn't taking any details into little country towns on the way. But Paul's not the only one who knows what lies ahead in Jerusalem. On his way, they stop in Tyre. And and if you skip forward again, sorry, we're skipping around a bit, but over to chapter 21, verse 4. See, 21, verse 4 says, And having sought out the disciples in Tyre, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, that same warning is given even uh, more graphically when Paul arrives in Caesarea, uh, which is on the doorstep of Jerusalem, down in verse 10 of chapter 21. Look what it says. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now this is a bit of an intriguing situation here. The Christians are convinced Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul has taken prophetic advice before to avoid dangerous situations. The Spirit has already warned him that it's so, and he knows it's going to be the case. And so why doesn't he listen this time? Well, there's not a contradiction with the Spirit here. They all know and they all knew that there would be suffering. Their love for Paul wants him to stay and not suffer. In fact, some think it's wrong for Christians to suffer, but we're 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 actually wrong to think that way. Paul makes it quite clear that God's will is more important than facing hardship or persecution. Some things in life are even more important than avoiding death. Now, in verse 14, they realise they need to let the Lord's will be done. Uh, And Paul goes to Jerusalem knowing he will suffer. No doubt he remembered the words of Jesus himself, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. See, Paul is actually very Jesus-like in this. Remember Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew that he would be crucified there for us? And so here's the context in which we get this record of Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's heading to Jerusalem, expecting to face hardship and not expecting to see them again. Now, we've, we've already seen that Paul sails past Ephesus in order to not be held up, and instead he sends a message to get the leaders of the church in Ephesus uh, to come to him in Miletus, where he gathers them together. Uh, now, this is actually a very important section of the book of Acts. It's one of those passages where we really need to sit up and take notice of what Paul is saying here. It's the only time that Paul addresses Christians directly in the book of Acts. Uh, He knows this will be the last time he sees them, and so it naturally adds weight to what he chooses to say. And essentially, he does two things. First, he gives a summary of the message he has preached to them and how he's lived amongst them. That is, the the message, what is the essence of Christianity, he gives that message. And secondly, he talks about the future, about how the church is going to go on after his departure and how they're to operate. In other words, it's a message that is especially relevant to us still today and especially to the leaders of church life today. Well, Paul begins by reviewing the past. Let's just pick it up there in verse 18 of chapter 20. Uh, at my graduation from Bible college, uh, the preacher giving the address at the time spoke from the scriptures about the role of those who had been prepared and given themselves for service in church life. Uh, we students at the time, we were sitting at the back of the platform behind where he was speaking, uh, and he noted, our, he noted our increased knowledge, having studied for three or four years, but at a critical point in what he was saying, he actually turned directly around to look us in the eye, and he said with great seriousness, don't impress us with what you know, impress us with how you live what you know. Uh, My own father has never let me forget uh, what he said to us that night, uh, and the Apostle Paul would agree. Paul was regularly attacked and criticized. False accusations were made. His actions and his motivations were questioned and condemned that has often been the case for christian leaders throughout history and it continues today and very sadly sometimes that criticism is accurate though often it's not in paul's case it's not and so he appeals to the the ephesian elders so he says you yourselves know how i lived among you or later on in verse 34 he says it again You yourselves know. It seems Paul has to defend himself yet again from some of these accusations and criticisms. And so he says, have a think about my manner of life when I was with you for those three years. What does it tell you? Later in New Testament, uh, James talks about watching your life's conversation. In other words, your whole character of life has a story to tell about you about who you really are. If they stopped for a moment to consider Paul's character of life, they would be in no doubt about his devotion to his calling and to them, humbly serving the Lord at times with tears and persevering through trials for their good. See, Paul had an incredibly impressive knowledge, but what he wanted to impress upon them was how he lived his whole manner of life. He wants them to remember the past as he now turns his attention to the future. Well, he tells them what we already know. uh, That is, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, Faithfulness to God requires that he goes. He's constrained by the Spirit, he says there in verse 22. But every option, in other words, every other option uh, is cut off to Paul if he is going to faithfully do God's will. Even though he knows that imprisonment and afflictions await him ahead. Paul could have done A Jonah, of course. Uh, You might remember Jonah. God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent and he would save them. But Jonah uh, runs off in the opposite direction. Jonah didn't want what God wanted. Uh, He wasn't prepared to do what God wanted him to do. He was unfaithful. But Paul is not like Jonah. He takes a different view of things. Look at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That's a staggering countercultural statement, isn't it? You know, I went to a, a, a funeral of a very good guy a little while back. And the final song, as many people have chosen, but the final song they chose to close his life with was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. It captured the essence of his life, his son said. And no doubt it did. But of course, he's not unique, is he? That song would probably be be a fitting finale to any average life not related to God. As Christians, we don't live our lives our way. We live them God's way. If ever, ever we should notice the contrast between the ideals and philosophies of modern life and Christianity, it would be here. I, I honestly can't think of one secular ideal that would encourage anyone to have anyone anyone but themselves as the priority in their thinking. See, Paul's life is not important when it's compared to finishing the ministry Jesus has given him. See, what, what priority are you giving... To ministering for Jesus. What worldly ideals are you pursuing that prevent you from ministering for Jesus? Is ministering for Jesus too uncomfortable, too tiring, too hard, too intrusive on your leisure, too costly on your bank account, too time consuming, too unfulfilling, too damaging to your career? too unappreciated? Or can you say like Paul, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. See, we don't have the same calling as Paul. But every Christian is called to serve Christ and to testify to God's grace. It's Paul's faithfulness that lies behind his confidence in saying Farewell in these next few verses. Let's just go to verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, such is the future that Paul never expects that they'll see each other again. And so he wants them to know that he's done what he claims is so important to him, that is, he's fulfilled the ministry that God had given him. In other words, he's preached the gospel of God's grace, verse 24, or the message of the kingdom, verse 25, the whole counsel of God, verse 27. See, Paul has been the faithful watchman who has warned the people of God's coming judgment and who is therefore innocent of their blood. Now, we kind of see it, don't we, even in nature, Uh, As the herd grazes, one male stands alert, head raised, sniffing the air. The watch beast stands aloof from the crowd and the welfare of the herd depends on how vigilant he is. See, Paul had been given the heavy responsibility of preaching the gospel. The tears he has shed had come from his concern that they should share in God's salvation he didn't fail to preach publicly or privately Jesus as Lord. That is, that Jesus died to pay for our sin. That salvation depends on repenting and trusting in Jesus. That it requires real change, turning to God and away from self. So, he hasn't shrunk from telling them the whole truth, the whole counsel of God. He hasn't shirked hard labour or opponents' threats. He's considered his life worth nothing for the sake of the Ephesians becoming true followers of Jesus Christ. see if they reject Christ now, it's not because Paul has failed to fill the ministry that God had given him. And it's this ministry that he now hands over to the responsibility of the Ephesian elders. Uh, Just pick it up there in verse 28. He says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace." which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul has taken some time to remind them of his ministry among them. Uh, Now he wants to talk uh, talk to them about how to lead the church into the future, a future without their founding pastor. He calls these uh, church leaders elders, verse 17, or overseers in verse 28. Uh, They're the same thing. Their role is to shepherd or pastor the flock, that is, pastor believers. Uh, These are the leaders of church life. And it's important to see that leadership of the church happens at the local level. But notice that the first responsibility of leaders is to pay careful attention to themselves. You know, there's a serious warning here to leaders. Keep watch over your own life first. Guard your heart from spiritual danger. Shepherd yourself well. I mean, leaders can fail. Many have. The results of failed leadership can be very damaging for the church. If you don't have responsibility for shepherding the church you can still be a great help by encouraging and asking your leaders how they're watching their own Christian lives in fact I hope you pray regularly for your leaders because they need you to do that for them even as they serve you and if you're a leader in church life or considering being one which I'd encourage you to let me urge you to watch your own heart There will be times and areas where you will be vulnerable to temptation and Satan's attacks. And so you'll need to be vigilant in watching over your own self. The reason why that's so important, of course, is because the leadership we're uh, talking about is leadership in God's church. They're not leading any old club or society. They're leading God's church. And the church is precious to God. You are precious to God. How do I know that? Because it's the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know Caleb is precious to Kurt because he hung up on me to go and speak to Caleb. He's probably done that plenty of times, I might add, but there you go. Um, But Christ was willing to die for the church. What are we who are leaders willing to do for them? It's a costly, weighty, privileged responsibility. Paul is the great model for shepherds of God's people. How precious they are. If you're a leader, is that how you see them? A good good shepherd makes sure the sheep are well fed. Uh, Leaders must not shrink from teaching the whole counsel of God, both publicly and privately. But sheep also need protection from danger. Uh, In Ephesus, Paul expected wolves to come in and not spare God's flock. See, even from within the church... Paul warns will come men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Now we know, don't we, from 2 Timothy, that Paul expected false teachers to be a danger in every church, not just in Ephesus. And the experience of history has shown us that Paul's expectations were right. I mean, even today, in our own denomination, we're saddened to see that there are those from within the church who want to distort the word of God and so deceive the flock. They're dangerous to people's spiritual welfare. You know, I know a church torn apart by exactly this kind of thing. They speak twisted things. In other words, they distort things. They speak using the Bible, perhaps, but they don't sit under its authority. They do use the Bible. They don't teach what it actually says. They teach twisted things. Avoid such people. Paul says. Actually, perhaps it's better to expose them. See, just because they sound convincing doesn't mean they can be trusted. Be in no doubt about the damage that false teachers can cause. And be alert, Paul says in verse 31. See, leaders need to feed the sheep well with the truth, but they also need to protect them from danger. It's why we need to keep getting people to open their Bibles, as Jasper has just explained to us here at church, and look at what it says, so that what I say is indeed what is actually in the Scriptures themselves. See, so you if you're in a growth group, keep pointing your growth groups back to the Word of God. Don't let people say things that can't be substantiated in the text. See, so we need to thank God and pray for good shepherds, especially in our local churches. But can I say also like our archbishop or our uh, leaders at Moore College and others like them who seek to protect us from men who speak twisted things. They often suffer for their stand, but they are faithfully protecting God's church that Jesus died for. Well, Luke, uh, who was with them, recalls the scene of their parting. Uh, there are many tears and embracing and prayer. And it's always difficult, isn't it, to see people we love, who have ministered to us, who we have ministered with, have to go. Uh, but sending people out, as hard as, it, hard, hard as it is, is often necessary for the church to continue to grow and be ministered to. And so, friends, I hope you recognise the weighty concerns of the book of Acts here. The apostles were dealing with eternal issues, people's destinies were being determined. What was preached was of vital importance. The image of the church as the people purchased to belong to God through the shedding of Christ's blood is a striking image. Christians are precious to God. You now, one minister I know here in Sydney used to regularly visit uh, one of the hospitals and he could never get a park. And so he took to parking right at the front where it said reserve for doctors only. I apologize to the doctors in the building but did that, and he said he was always ready for anyone who challenged him for leaving his car there. His answer was, I am a doctor, I'm a doctor to the soul, and I am about the business of eternity. Is it that the shepherds of God's church, both paid and lay, have lost that idea that they are ministers of eternal things? We have accountants and lawyers and plumbers, and they all look after important earthly matters. But we also need shepherds, pastors, who watch over our souls and keep us accountable to God. So when they preach the gospel, which includes the whole counsel of God, whether publicly or privately, they are talking to people about the weightiest matters of their lives, about the health of their souls. Have we lost that sense of accountability to God that we pick up from Paul when he says, I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, there's no trivia out of the is there? We're involved in important business, weighty matters that have eternal consequences. Well, friends, we're going to be praying now, and I'm not sure who's leading us in prayer, but it's Martin, so I'll leave it to Martin to lead us in prayer. Thanks.